If you're familiar with the writings of Paul, you'll know that there are quite a few times when he says, and finally, and he's far from finished. But this really is, and finally, this evening. How do you conclude such a momentous letter as this one from Paul to the church in Rome? Well, I hope you've spent, I hope you gained much help from the time that we've spent going through what is this jewel in the crown in God's Word. I know I've gained very much from all the time I've spent studying it. I wonder, uh, I wondered this a lot through this week, I wonder if Paul realised just how special this particular letter would prove to be as the early church fathers began to gather the writings that would make up what we now know as the New Testament. Did he have any idea that of all the letters that would become part of Scripture, it would be this one which would be placed first after the four Gospels and the book of the Acts of the Apostles as the canon of the New Testament Scripture was put in order? Such importance being attached to it because of the, the breadth and the depth of the gospel teaching that is contained just in this one letter. Well, so this evening we're going to look at the, these closing verses as Paul brings to this church his final thoughts and comments. And this last section falls down uh, very neatly into three sections. A final warning, final greetings, and a final doxology. So first of all, verses 17 to 20, a final warning. Now I don't think this warning is being directed at the Roman church because Paul believes that this problem already exists amongst them. He's usually far too blunt and forthright about such things. Uh, he'd have said it as it was if this was a real issue in the church in Rome. Um, you'll know how blunt Paul can be when a church is in error, if you've read 1 Corinthians and Galatians, for example. And indeed, when you get to verse 19, uh, your obedience has become known to all men. Well, that suggests that much is well with the church in Rome. So why mention this? Why issue this warning to them? It's because Paul knows there is no church that is immune to the things that he's about to say. There is no church that cannot be caught up in these, in these things. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. There were many travelling preachers in those days and they presented themselves as being genuine ministers of the gospel of Christ. And they would arrive at a church and gain a hearing, begin to preach and teach and very soon they would have an eager following from amongst the members of that church. But there's a big problem. They are promoting ideas and attitudes which are not in line with the gospel of Christ as taught 
by the apostles. And the things that they're bringing to these churches violate many of the principles which were taught by the apostles as being necessary for a healthy Christian walk and as being necessary for churches to be biblically faithful. And because they were at odds with the things that that church had originally been taught, very soon rifts and divisions within churches began to show. There would be those in the church really taken in by this new preacher and urging everyone else to follow their teaching. Others would be dead set against it, while some would just be totally confused by the whole thing and don't know which way to turn. And soon the church is in turmoil. There's open division and argument and disagreement, and some just leave because they can't take that kind of hassle. Could that happen even in a church like this one in Rome? Oh yes, Paul knows it only too well. He's seen it before. But how could such a thing happen? How could an obedient, faithful church find itself in such a situation? Well, we're told in verse 18, by smooth words and flattering speech, which deceive the hearts of the simple. Smooth words, flattering speech. They speak so well. They sound so convincing. They're saying the kinds of things I like to hear. The things they preach, they seem so plausible. This all sounds so reasonable to me. But none of those things confirm anyone as being a genuine minister of the gospel. And the New Testament actually seems to suggest that there were more of these false teachers going around than there were genuine ones. 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul, speaking of his own ministry, we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. The Apostle John, in his two letters, in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And in his second letter, in the first chapter, many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Some in the church get so caught up uh, trying to work out who the antichrist might be 
that they completely miss the many antichrists who are already wreaking havoc in the church. The greatest threat to churches does not come from those who oppress and persecute us from the outside. The greatest threats to churches come from those who we welcome in through the front door, who completely fool us. And these false teachers, we're told, are out to serve themselves. Paul uses a great expression. They don't serve Christ. They serve their own belly. In other words, they're they're out to satisfy their own appetites. They're out to serve and satisfy themselves. Some perhaps using it for financial gain. Some who just lust after the acclaim and the reputation it brings them. Some enjoying the thrill of being able to exert such influence over others. Some, well, just plain wacky. Some, all of the above. What none of them do, says Paul, is serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a completely different motive. They have a completely different agenda. They serve only themselves. You cannot serve Christ and serve yourself. You can only do one or the other. Who are you serving this evening? The proper way to assess these teachers is not to judge them by their tremendous gifts, their gifts of oratory, their gifts of using fine words, their gifts of persuasion. No, the way to assess these false teachers is to take what they are teaching back to Scripture. And there you will find that their contrary doctrine is laid bare. They speak so well, they sound so convincing and plausible. It all seems quite reasonable to me. Maybe so. But does what they teach agree with Scripture? That's the issue. They deceive. They are contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, verse 17. And so, to be able to make that assessment about their doctrine, you need to know the Scripture. How can you know if someone is teaching something contrary to biblical doctrine if you don't know biblical doctrine? And therefore, you can't make that assessment. You have not got the the tools that you need to have that kind of discernment. And so, you are much more likely to be taken in by them. This is why Romans is such a jewel in the crown in the Bible, because in this one relatively short book in the Bible, it summarizes for you, all in one place, so much of the truth that you need to know. And who are the most vulnerable in all of this? At the end of verse 18, Paul talks about the simple. And that's not an insult about someone's intellectual ability. It's a way of talking about those who are ignorant about doctrine. 
They might be ignorant about doctrine because they don't think doctrine's important. And so they've never really had much time for it. It may be that they're ignorant about doctrine because they've never been taught. Because they go to a church that doesn't believe that doctrine is important. And so they are just like sitting ducks for these preachers. Because they're completely ill-equipped to deal with what's coming their way. And these gullible, vulnerable, ignorant believers are hoovered up by these false teachers who often, by the way, will sometimes enter quietly, gently, unobtrusively, but gradually gain the foothold that has always been their intention from the moment they walked in through the door. And so Paul exhorts us to be wise, verse 19, in what is good and simple concerning evil. Be wise in what is good. Feed upon what is good. Know and follow the clear commands and teaching of Scripture. Claim the clear promises of God and live in the light of them. Know biblical doctrine through and through so that it will be in your heart to keep you from sin and to guide and instruct you all through life. And preach no other gospel save that that's been handed down to us by the apostles and such is laid out for us in the likes of the book of Romans. But in all of these other falsehoods, be simple. Be, keep yourself ignorant of them. Keep them well away. Have nothing to do with them. Now, we must not be completely ignorant of them, but we must not let them have any place or influence in our thinking, in our doctrine, in our lives, in our churches. In that way, we must be simple. Paul doesn't want the church in Rome or any other church to be complacent or unaware about these things. And of course, for us today, such false teachers tend not to arrive physically on your doorstep as they did in New Testament days. They tend to arrive digitally through the world of the internet. But the principle is exactly the same and the danger and the issue is exactly the same. No matter how they appear, no matter where they come from, the issue is the same. So you're to be diligent in being vigilant. Use the word of God to expose them. And once you've recognised them, then what? Well, Paul tells us at the end of verse 17, avoid them. You have to identify them. Or how else do you know who you're supposed to be avoiding? but you are to avoid them, shun them, give them no time. Do not give them your ear. Show them no hospitality. Give them no place or voice whatsoever in your church. Uh, and this, by the way, and just so you know, this is one reason why we as a church have no affiliation with any church which is part of a denomination which tolerates false teaching. 
To remain in a denomination which tolerates false teaching, or usually today now actually it's promoting false teaching, that is a grave sin. To be a church that is part of a denomination that promotes false teaching is a grave sin. Why? How can I say that with such boldness? Because it is to completely disobey this instruction from the Apostle Paul. Avoid them, he says. Have nothing to do with them. Have no fellowship with them at all. Avoid all such people. How could you possibly remain in a denomination with them? How can we allow ourselves to be linked with such a denomination because of an association that we have with one of their churches? They ought to be avoided. Can't be done. And this, of course, actually, uh, in the, is what, in the main, has spawned so many independent evangelical churches, such as ourselves. And, of course, it's those kinds of churches that we associate with both here in Liverpool, and actually we are very blessed to have as many as we do in this city. Uh, there are loads of cities across the country don't have anything like the number of good Bible-teaching, independent, evangelical churches like we do in Liverpool. And of course we associate with all of these churches around the world as well. Now the good thing that Paul also reminds us in verse 20 is that one day for all of us these kinds of battles will be over and that's in verse 20 look the day is approaching the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet he'll do it shortly we will not have the strife of all of these kinds of things anymore when Christ returns all of these things will be brought to a close. But until then, the danger and the battle remains. But Paul teach of us, teaches us that the grace of God is effectual in supplying us with all the wisdom and discernment and resolve that we need. That's why he concludes that section, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because he's confident that the grace of Christ will enable you to heed this warning and deal with any of these situations if they should happen. Now, of course, we live in a world today where to the world in which we live, obedience to the word of God is actually some great wickedness now. For us as Christian believers and for us as a Christian church to be obedient to the word of God and to believe all that God has revealed in his word, for many who don't know him, that is to be bigoted and hateful and intolerant and to be narrow-minded. It is even that now in the eyes of some Christians. Well, so be it. But it's obedience that our God and Saviour is looking for. And so be careful, says Paul. Be vigilant, be diligent, 
there are those who can come into your church and wreak absolute havoc amongst you. And so, just heed the warning in order that these things might not destroy you. And warning issued, Paul now starts to wrap things up. And after his final warning, he brings final greetings. Verses 21 to 24. Now he's delivered his own greetings to the church in Rome. We looked at those over the last few weeks. We saw that big long list of names uh, last Sunday evening. But Paul is writing this letter in Corinth and there are others with him. And they also wish to be remembered to the church in Rome. And in this passing on of greetings, they want the church in Rome to know that they are with them in spirit and in prayer. Paul, pass my greetings on to them. And so who, who gets mentioned here? Well, there's Timothy, uh, without doubt, the Timothy to whom Paul wrote the two letters in the New Testament which bear Timothy's name. One of Paul's closest and dearest and most trusted fellow workers in the gospel. Such was Timothy's solid reputation uh, that this only lends further weight, if anyone needed, to the reliability and the trustworthiness of what is written here. This isn't just from Paul in complete isolation. There's all of these others who he works with in the gospel and all of them are happy to have their names added to the end of the letter. The Apostle Paul isn't a maverick. He isn't a lone ranger plowing his own furrow. He isn't a man who has slowly but surely veered off course into all kinds of error of his own. He works in tandem and in harmony and in association with other trusted church leaders and elders, men like Timothy. That's important. That helps us to be sure that this is all part of genuine gospel ministry, the things that we're reading here. And then there's a man named Lucius. Some think this might be a reference to Luke. Uh, but that's open to debate and it can't actually be proved either way. Maybe it was. Jason. Now, we read of a man with that name in Acts chapter 17. It could be him. He's a man who gave hospitality to believers in Thessalonica. Maybe that's the same Jason. Sosipata, we're not quite sure about. He could be the Sopata, spelt differently, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, perhaps it's him. Uh, he was a Berean who accompanied Paul in his missionary journeys at that time. But Paul says these men are Jews, all of them. They are fellow countrymen. So they're all Jews. And all of these Jews are sending their greetings to this predominantly Gentile church. And that might not seem much of an issue to you today. But it was a big issue for them then. That's a very substantial cultural barrier 
that the grace of God and the gospel of Christ has completely broken down and demolished. Jews sending greetings to Gentiles? Unheard of! Unless you're a Christian and unless you're part of a Christian church. Uh, that's actually very significant that such, these for many people were really important cultural barriers. And these are uh, fences that are erected by so many in their day. We have nothing to do with the likes of them. But all such barriers are broken down by the gospel of Christ. And then verse 22, which for some of you might seem a little bit confusing. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Hang on, Ian, all the way through, you've been saying this is from Paul. Well, yes, it is. Tertius, who wrote this epistle. He's talking about the fact that he is the one who literally put pen to paper. He's the one who actually did the physical writing down. This was actually very, very common in New Testament days. This is a man who is working as Paul's personal assistant and who is writing down the letter as Paul dictates it to him. This is a very common practice. So common that a man who had this kind of role actually had a title for that role. It's called an amanuensis. And it was very common uh, in, uh, amongst the Greeks particularly. And, and Paul has taken up uh, this form of producing, especially a letter as long as Romans is. And, and Tertius, who's writing frantically as Paul is dictating, uh, he manages to add his own greetings to the church in Rome as he's writing it down. Gaius, verse 23, my host. It's in the house of Gaius that Paul presumably is currently living in Corinth. And Gaius has a home that is open to the whole church. A man of great hospitality, a man with a big open heart for all Christians and for everyone in the church. Erastus, the treasurer of the city. Well now, Corinth was a very substantial city in those days. It was a very important trading city. And for him to be the treasurer, well, that's quite something. And interestingly, there has been found on a pavement inscription in ancient Corinth, this name, Erastus, inscribed Although the particular Erastus that has been found on that inscription was actually, well, he had a job which was kind of uh, the council clerk of works, as we would have called it a number of years ago, rather than the city treasurer. But it could be the same man. Perhaps at various times he held both of these posts. If it is such a man as this, well, that just shows that in Corinth, as in Rome, some very significant public civic figures were being converted and added to the church. 
Quartus is unknown to us. But he's a brother in Christ. And that's all the qualification that's needed. And he gets mentioned. There's this real sense of fellowship, isn't there, between them and Paul and the church in Rome. Paul is quick to make it clear he is part of this far bigger communion of believers who are all working together for the cause of Christ. That's why we should cherish, as we do, the bonds that we have with other churches as we share with them in gospel work. And even though he's still not quite finished, Paul, he can't help but open up his heart to the church in Rome. Again, verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He just can't hold himself back. Oh, that they would have such a sense and an awareness, an awareness of the grace of Christ, a reliance upon the grace of Christ, a trusting in the grace of Christ. And this bond in Christ, which exists between these believers that we're reading in this last chapter, many of whom have never met one another, it's given this place of prominence at the end of the letter because it's, it's such an important aspect of, of our place amongst other believers in whom God is at work. And we too are to have this, this big-heartedness towards other believers and other Christian churches. Uh, and we have this final example of that as Paul brings his letter to this close. And then as we get to verse 25, we have this final doxology. To him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We read in God's word that Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. How do we remain established in the faith? How do we remain established in Christ? Actually, it's the same way as you first entered in. It's the same way by which you were called in. It's by the gospel of Christ. The way that you remain in Christ is through the gospel of Christ. Paul reminded the Corinthian church that he knew nothing amongst them except Christ and him crucified. Now when he said that, he wasn't only talking about the message that he preached evangelistically to the unconverted in order that they may be saved. He was also talking about how he taught them to be built up in the faith and to go on and keep on. It was all about Christ from beginning to end. We are to run with endurance the race that's set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The cross of Christ isn't simply the starting line where we begin, but then leave it behind. 
No, the cross of Christ is where we remain. The cross of Christ is how you remain. The cross of Christ is how you are kept. The cross of Christ is how you endure. The cross of Christ is how you keep going. And why does Paul say, my gospel? Why does he call it my gospel? Is he trying to ascribe to himself some sort of a claim? Is he trying to make out that somehow he has had a part in producing this gospel message? No, not at all. Where he says, uh, my gospel, he will establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, what he's doing there is uh, he's saying that kind of in parallel to his warning about false teachers. Paul is fully assured that the special calling that he has received from Christ, those unique personal encounters that, that he had with Christ, which he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, those things all mean that the gospel that Paul is preaching is the one true, genuine gospel of Christ. Not like these others who claim to be preaching the gospel, but theirs is not the gospel. When a Christian uses the word gospel, it must ever only mean one thing. The gospel which comprises that doctrine which the apostles taught as Paul summarizes for us in this letter. Only this is the gospel. And it must be all of this which is the gospel. We must, we must preach Christ and remain in Christ. The way Jesus put it is that we are to abide in him. We are to remain in him. That is what will establish the Christian. And that's why as a Christian, you never tire of hearing the gospel. If you're a Christian, if you truly are a believer, if you've truly been born again, you never tire of hearing the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just the thing that saved you first. The gospel is what keeps you and enables you to endure. I've mentioned this before, but quite a few years ago now, uh, one of the earlier uh, Banner of Truth ministers' conferences that I attended, Stuart Olliott had been asked to deliver the closing conference sermon. It was the last message of the entire conference before everyone went home. He stood up and told us that he was going to preach the gospel to us and proceeded to do it. Now, some, when you hear that, thinking that here is a congregation of some 300 or so men who are all church pastors or missionaries 
or full-time evangelists, many of whom have been in that work for decades. Some might have thought that a rather strange topic for Stuart to have chosen. Why does this group of men, of all people, need to hear the gospel? Let me tell you, he was exactly right. At the end of that conference, that was exactly what we needed to hear. And at the end of that conference, hearts were moved in a way that they probably hadn't been moved in any other part of the conference. As Stuart took us back to the cross and to Christ, back to where it all began, and he took us back to where we all must remain and where the Christian life carries on at the cross of Christ. And Paul, as he gets to the end of Romans, he says this, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Now some of you are already aware that when we read this word mystery in the New Testament, what it's actually talking about is something which God at one time had not revealed and made known, but he has now revealed it, and he has now made it known, and it's a mystery no more. And the gospel was revealed progressively throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, little by little, God revealing more and more of his plan of salvation. But you certainly don't find a portion like Romans in the Old Testament that lays it all out for you like that. But it's there. Then God revealed himself and spoke to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God spoke to us finally through those apostles who Christ had appointed and now we have the completed scriptures and all that we need to know has now been made known. It's all revealed. That's what Paul is meaning there. We've got everything that we need now in the completed scriptures. And this is the gospel of the apostles. This is the gospel of Paul. And it is to be taken into the whole world because it is this preached word, it is this preached gospel, it is the, procl the proclamation of this Lord Jesus Christ that God takes and uses by his Holy Spirit to bring sinners to saving faith and to firmly establish them and keep them. What a blessing and privilege to live in gospel days with a Bible in front of us. What a blessing and privilege to be involved in gospel work, to be able to take this message, this good news, which so many people for countless centuries, they only had in part. They only saw it in shadows and types. But now we have it all clearly 
laid out for us and we see clearly the person and work of Christ. And our privilege now is to take this message out into the world. And do you see that in, in many ways it's amazingly simple? It isn't complicated. It's very straightforward. The gospel of Christ is everything. Don't even begin to think that you can somehow add to it or improve it. Don't ever think that there's a, there's a part of it that the world won't swallow anymore, so we have to get away and, and do without that bit now. There's no new and improved version required. It cannot be improved or bettered. It is all of God who alone is wise. He alone has the wisdom and the authority to put any plan of salvation in place. And you can be sure that because it is he who has done it, it is perfect in every way. It does what he gave the gospel to do. Christ does what Christ came to do. It meets our desperate need perfectly. And nothing has been left undone in the gospel. It needs no tweaks. It needs no adjustments. It needs nothing to garnish it and decorate it. It needs nothing to be placed alongside it. Christ and his gospel is all sufficient. That's why Paul just preached Christ. Therefore, to God alone be the glory, because this is all of him. Through the one by whom all of this has been accomplished, as we were remembering this morning, through the one delivered into men's hands, through the one who died, through the one who rose again, to God, who alone is wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.